Welcome. You are listening to the Audio Information Network of Colorado. This recording is intended to be used solely by individuals with barriers to print. Hello, welcome to the Black Experience Hour, a 60-minute weekly program bringing you a wide array of articles from a variety of sources. This one's being recorded on the 10th of February for the listening week that begins the 11th. Your reader's name is Susan Shirey. This week we'll open with current events, articles mostly from theroot.com, and then move on to more historical pieces. First, written by Jessica Washington, published on the 7th. White supremacists tried to destroy Baltimore. Here's what you need to know. Two white supremacists were arrested Monday on conspiracy charges in a racist plot to destroy Baltimore's power grid. Black Americans have been sounding the alarm on the rising threat of white supremacist violence for years, and a recent planned attack on the predominantly black city of Baltimore showcases just how warranted those concerns have been. On Monday, federal law enforcement officers arrested a white supremacist couple plotting to, quote, completely destroy Baltimore. The couple, Sarah Clendaniel from Cattonsville, Maryland, and Brandon Russell of Orlando, Florida, planned to destroy the city's power grid in hopes that it would cause civil unrest. According to the complaint obtained by the New York Times, Clint Daniel said that taking out the five major power stations in Baltimore would, quote, completely destroy this whole city and spark chaos. It's worth noting that somewhat racist assumption that the predominantly black city would immediately fall to violence if the power went out locally. But then again, we are talking about white supremacists, so we can't be too surprised. This plot isn't Russell's first time on federal authorities' radar. According to the New York Times, Russell was a founding member of a neo-Nazi group that focused on targeting electrical and nuclear facilities in Florida in 2017, Russell also spent time in federal prison for bomb-making. Russell provided instructions and location information. Thomas J. Sobachinsky, the special agent in charge of the FBI's field office in Baltimore, said at a news conference. He went on, He described attacking the power transformers as the greatest thing somebody can do. Destroying a city's power grid is hardly a new concept among right-wing extremists. In North Carolina, two power stations were damaged by intentional gunfire, and officials have warned that attacks on electrical power are becoming a more common tactic among the right. Black Americans have been among the loudest group raising concerns about the threat of white supremacist terrorism. In 2021, roughly pardon me, 79% of black Americans called white supremacy the most lethal terrorist threat. It'll be worth watching how politicians respond to see if more will be done to address the threat of white supremacist violence. 
Next one written by Kaylin Womack, and yes, we're reading from theroot.com. White neighbors tried to drive out black ranchers by slaying their livestock. The neighbors are accused of stalking a black couple and vandalizing their property. This was published on the 7th also. What in the American horror story do we have here? A black Colorado family recently repaired their ranch following some flood damage only for their white neighbors to terrorize both of them and their livestock. According to Nine News, however, their complaints about the stalking and harassment actually backfired on them. Courtney W. Mallory and his wife Nicole own the Freedom Acres Ranch, a 1,000-acre plot of land with a range of goats, pigs, chickens, and every good thing a farm should have. Then, in 2020, they began waking up to beheaded, butchered, and missing animals. Graphic images shared with Ark Republic showed baby goats that were allegedly poisoned and a cow with its insides spilling on the ground. The Mallorys claim their white neighbors are to blame for these heinous acts, which are also possibly racially motivated, and if that's the case, their neighbors didn't stop at the animals. They also allegedly tried to kill and butcher the couple as well. This following quote from Ark Republic, Frequently they must replace surveillance equipment after they see strangers pointing a device toward their cameras, which ends up jamming them and taking out the signal. Plus, their electricity lines have been cut, and neighbors have stolen well water by running an illegal line from their source. One day, Courtney was chased by a white man when repairing a portion of his fence. The aggressor, who was in a car, gunned for Courtney, who made it to his vehicle in just enough time to dash away in a hellish pursuit. Once he made it to the end of his property, the man steered the other way. One evening, Nicole was followed by a white woman who almost ran her car off the road, then put on high beams and pulled out what looked like a gun. The confrontation was exceptionally unnerving because Nicole was returning from a church function with her visiting nieces and nephew. End quote. Mr. Mallory told Ark Republic this is all a ploy to take his land, which El Paso County Sheriff Emery Gerhardt allegedly condoned. The Mallorys say he'd been notified of the events happening at the ranch but hadn't made a single police report. After two years and 19 complaints, six restraining orders, and 170 calls, the sheriff threatened to arrest the couple if they dialed 911 again, said Nicole. Unfortunately, he kept his promise. On Monday, the Mallorys were arrested on felony warrants for stalking. Despite their extensive allegations, the one harassment complaint filed against the Mallorys seemed to be the only one that stuck according to Nine News. Now the NAACP is stepping in. I would really hope that the El Paso County Sheriff's Department and several others in rural areas understand that we're taking this seriously, said Portia Prescott, president of the Rocky Mountain NAACP, via Nine News. She said, it takes Pardon me, it needs to be taken a lot more seriously than they have taken it in the past.
CPR News is also following this story, and I'm going to read what they've written, which was posted today, the 11th. What we know about the case of black ranchers in El Paso County, written by Lucretia Wimbley. A two-year-old property dispute between black ranchers in rural El Paso County and their white neighbors has led to allegations of stalking and racism and very little clarity over the truth. What is clear is that court records show there have been nearly two dozen complaints filed by both parties within the last two years. Nicole and Courtney Mallory, the owners of Freedom Acres Ranch in El Paso County, were granted temporary protection orders on a couple of occasions against their neighbors over the last two years. But their cries for help have mostly been dismissed in the courts at this point. Their neighbors, Teresa and Bonnie Clark, currently have restraining orders against them that are in effect. The Mallorys for two years have complained that neighbors and others trespassed on their property pointed guns at them, called them racial slurs, released dogs on them, damaged their ranch gate and security cameras, harmed their animals, and would incite violence against them on social media. They were the first to file a complaint beginning in December 2021, where they highlighted some of the above. The Clarks first filed complaints against the Mallorys in January 2022, claiming the Mallorys would stalk them, cross their easement, and intimidate them by sitting at their fence and watching them until they went inside and constantly calling the police on them. Lack of clarity regarding where each family's property ends has been a major point of contention in the dispute between the Mallorys and the Clarks, but Courtney and Nicole Mallory were both arrested Monday morning on warrants stemming from stalking charges filed against them by neighbors. Nicole Mallory was released Monday, and Courtney Mallory was released Tuesday night with help from the Rocky Mountain NAACP after El Paso Judge Deborah Pearson bumped his bond up to $6,000 in court Tuesday afternoon. Here's what we learned from a criminal affidavit against the Mallorys. According to a criminal affidavit, Courtney Mallory, 41, was charged with felony stalking, misdemeanor tampering with a utility meter, and a petty charge of theft under $50 on December 9th. His wife, Nicole, had also been charged with felony stalking last year. After confol- pardon me, consulting with the local district attorney's office, El Paso County Sheriff's Sergeant, Emery Ray Gerhardt filed a sworn affidavit charging Courtney Mallory. In it, he lists complaints from Teresa Clark, who said the Mallorys have harassed her repeatedly. In an emailed statement sent to Colorado Public Radio on Friday, Teresa Clark said she's in fear for her life, her animals, her house, and her friends. She said she lives with her 82-year-old mother in Yoder, who she said is afraid to. Oh, pardon me, who she is afraid for, too. Clark said in the note, I'm disabled from brain surgery. I have had a stroke. I have been victimized for the last two years. In the affidavit, Gerhardt said Clark had been in contact with him about being harassed by the Mallorys since March 2022. 
In one incident, Clark showed Gerhardt a video she took of her truck with a window busted out and the tire tracks from the scene leading to the Mallory's property. Other pictures and video Clark gave to police, according to Gerhardt, allegedly showed multiple cameras on the Mallory property that pointed toward her house. The Mallory's home and Clark's home are about a mile apart, separated by an easement. According to the affidavit, the county does not recognize the easement as a road. Gerhardt stated the easement is the main source of egress for Clark and her family. Clark gathers the mail and places her trash on the easement as well. The affidavit states, Clark also showed police pictures and video of the Mallory's stopping their vehicle in the easement near Clark's gate. Nicole Mallory is seen in other videos near the easement with her hands in the air saying, quote, hands up, don't shoot, Gerhardt said in the affidavit. Courtney Mallory is also seen shortly after walking by Clark's property with his hands in the air, the complaint states. Nicole Mallory is seen in the video using a loudspeaker mentioning things that Clark should, quote, pack for heaven. Other times, the Mallorys are seen driving past her property or up to the easement, sometimes as Clark gets ready to leave for work and when she returns. This is in the affidavit. As recent as December, police said Courtney Mallory was seen crossing his fence line and taking Clark's trash can. According to the affidavit, Gerhardt in the affidavit said he finds it highly unusual that the Mallorys put themselves in close proximity to Clark. Gerhardt writes, This is compounded by the fact that both Mallory's have obtained temporary protection orders against Miss Clark. Having lived in a rural portion of El Paso County for 20 years and investigating criminal activity solely in the rural portions of eastern El Paso County for seven years, I find this activity highly unusual and outright disturbing. Gerhardt said all of these incidents were documented by Clark in a 19-page stalking log that she maintains against the Mallorys. He said last August they attempted to set up a meeting and resolve the issue with the Mallorys by contacting Nicole Mallory's attorney, but they were unable to arrange a meeting. It is unclear at the moment why the sheriff's office didn't assign someone else to investigate the claims because the Mallorys have also complained about Gerhardt claiming he was complicit in intimidating them and trying to force them off of their land. Gerhardt stated in the affidavit that he was the subject of four of the Mallory's complaints against El Paso County Sheriff deputies in the last two years, all of which were dismissed. In total, Gerhardt said the Mallory's filed more than 15 internal complaints. That's, pardon me, that's internal affairs complaints against deputies. El Paso County Sheriff's Office executes search warrant at the Mallory's Ranch. In the affidavit, Gerhardt said he obtained a warrant on November 22nd to search the Mallory's property, and the next day he visited their ranch and took three surveillance cameras and three motion sensors that were directed at Clark's home. Gerhardt said Courtney Mallory met him while he was executing the warrant, and he explained that the cameras were being taken as part of the ongoing stalking investigation. While at the Mallory's home, Gerhardt said he saw, quote, unusual wiring coming from one of the nearby transformers on a power pole. 
He had already received photos and video of Clark from Clark showing Courtney and Nicole Mallory working with someone else to access the power transformer. Gerhardt then called the Southeast Power Company Association and told them about the potential power tampering. An inspector arrived soon after and determined the power company did not conduct the unusual wiring and disconnected the power supply from the transformer. The company later placed a lock on the box according to a complaint filed against the company by Teresa Clark, which has since been dismissed. NAACP Investigating MLK Commission Supports the Mallories Vern Howard, Chairman of the Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Colorado Holiday Commission, a private group that organizes MLK events nationally and also supports victims of social injustice, spoke on behalf of the Mallories Thursday and said they are emotionally distraught and frustrated with a justice system that, quote, intentionally refuses to assist them. The Rocky Mountain NAACP is currently investigating the Mallories' case and said their first priority is to ensure the Mallories are safe and that they get an attorney. A Realtors Association is looking into land deeds to determine where the property line is truly located between the Mallory and Clark homes, said Howard. He added that the Mallories believe they were targeted by neighbors and others in the area a few years ago after purchasing the property, which was abandoned prior to their arrival. Howard said the Mallories being black didn't help. Howard said, El Paso County has a strong history of white supremacy and the Klan in Colorado. It's where the movie Black Klansman took place. He was referencing the movie about Ron Stallworth, the first black police officer to work at the Colorado Springs Police Department, who, in 1978, successfully infiltrated the local chapter of the Ku Klux Klan in Colorado Springs to unravel the organization. Howard said on Thursday, The Mallories' dogs were poisoned with antifreeze. Their goats have been butchered and other livestock. The Mallories started filing police reports constantly to get something done, but the El Paso sheriff refused to respond and take their calls for help seriously. The sheriff's office told them if they continued to make these allegations and calling the police, then they would be arrested. The sheriff's office denied the allegations of partiality and said it has investigated, but the only crimes they could find were committed by the Mallories themselves. They reported responding to 170 calls for service and 911 calls, 911, and 19 complaints from the Mallories and their neighbors in the last couple of years. Colorado Public Radio News has a records request pending to review those documents. Howard said the Mallorys also believe Courtney Mallory was held illegally in jail on Monday, giving the Clarks time to file another restraining order. Teresa Clark filed a restraining order against Courtney Mallory in December, which has since been mandated by the courts. Judge Pearson ordered Courtney Mallory to have no contact with Teresa or Bonnie Clark in court on Tuesday. Clark also filed a complaint against a man she believes is working for the Mallories and poisoned her livestock. The sheriff's office refused to do anything when the Mallories came to them for help when they feared for their lives, said Howard. 
He said the Mallories have suffered a loss of more than $200,000 in damages to their livestock and property. Courtney Mallory's next court date is scheduled for February 14th. Nicole Mallory's next hearing is February 16th. Back to the root.com. Written by Jessica Washington, posted on the 11th. No, pardon me, on the 10th. I think I've gotten my dates confused. This is the 10th that this is being recorded. Mississippi Republicans want to create a separate court for the black city of Jackson. Jackson Mayor Chokwe Lumumba called the legislation, quote, some of the most oppressive legislation in our city's history. Here's what you need to know. In Jackson, Mississippi, leaders are raising the alarm about a new bill in the Mississippi State House. And you're going to want to pay attention to... The Republican-led State House passed a bill on Wednesday creating a separate, unelected lower court system to oversee Jackson, Mississippi. It doesn't take a whole lot of guessing to figure out that Republicans won't be allowing Jackson residents, or frankly, anyone black, to determine who will sit on this court overseeing a majority black city. According to The Guardian, Supreme Court Chief Justice Michael Randolph, who is white and was appointed by a Republican governor, and Republican State Attorney General Lynn Fitch, who is also white, will be in charge of judicial appointments. But wait, it actually gets worse. In addition to creating a new court system, Republicans also voted to expand a Capitol Police force, which state officials oversee. The police force would control all the predominantly white neighborhoods in Jackson, which include a large chunk of the entertainment and shopping centers. Naturally, local leaders, including Jackson Mayor Chokwe Antar Lumumba, are not taking this news lying down. What we just saw was some of the most oppressive legislation we have seen in our city's history, said Lumumba. It's oppressive because it strips the rights of black folks to vote. It's oppressive because it puts a military force over people that has no accountability to them. It's oppressive because there will be judges who determine sentences over people's lives. It's oppressive because it redirects their tax dollars to something they don't endorse and don't believe in. The battle between Jackson residents and officials and the state government is hardly new, the city has suffered from a seemingly endless water crisis, which many have attributed to the lack of funding for Jackson's crumbling infrastructure. Although there's been plenty of blame to go around, experts argue that Republican Governor Tate Reeves' decision to prioritize white communities over Jackson regarding funding has contributed significantly to the water crisis. Unfortunately for Jackson, residents Pardon me. Unfortunately for Jackson residents, the bill will now go through to state Senate where Republicans have a significant majority. It's entirely possible this legislation could become law, although it's unlikely to go through without a fight from black Mississippians. Next one written by Jessica Washington, posted on the 10th. The oldest school for black children just moved, and here's why. 
In Virginia, a building that historians believe is the oldest standing school for black children was just moved half a mile away. Black history has been under attack in the United States, but in Williamsburg, Virginia, historians are working to emphasize a black historical site with national significance. On Friday, a building believed to be the oldest black schoolhouse in the United States was picked up and moved half a mile into the Colonial Williamsburg Museum. In recent years, the Open Air Museum has worked to expand its focus on black history in the face of criticism that its exhibits gloss over the history of slavery and glorify the colonial period, parentheses, which, if you've been there, is a very fair critique. The Bray School, built 25 years before the American Revolution, taught free and enslaved black children. According to the Associated Press, the small Pinewood building historians didn't confirm the school's site until 2021. I'm not sure about that sentence, but that's what's written here. Um... The school's backstory is, in many ways, a mixed bag. On the one hand, historians who spoke to the Associated Press said the school's discovery dispelled the belief that enslaved people were uneducated. Everything that I've learned about my ancestors was wrong, Tanya Meredith, the Bray School Lab's oral historian, told the Associated Press. They could learn, they did learn, they were able. However, on the other hand, the school would not have necessarily been a place where black students were taught liberation. Religion was at the heart of the school, and it was not a gospel of abolition. Maureen Elgersman Lee, director of William and Mary's Bray School Lab, told the Associated Press, Lee went on, There was this need to proselytize and to bring salvation while still not doing anything to destabilize the institution of slavery. Save the soul, but continue to enslave the body. It was the here versus the hereafter. Despite the complicated emotions evoked by the school, historians clearly see the necessity of preserving its historical legacy, And if you have any plans to visit Colonial Williamsburg, it might be worth adding to your list for a visit. Next one, also written by Jessica Washington, published on the 10th. Representative Barbara Lee is expected to launch her Senate campaign this month. There are currently no black women in the United States Senate but Representative Barbara Lee may be poised to change that. According to sources who spoke to the Washington Post, Representative Lee is expected to launch her campaign for Senator Dianne Feinstein's seat by the end of the month. The announcement is reportedly timed to match up with Black History Month. Currently, there are no black women in the United States Senate, and there have only been two in our almost 250-year history. Our voices are sorely missed in the Senate, Lee said in a statement to the Washington Post. She went on, My lived experience as a black woman making true progressive change for Californians will give a voice to the U.S. to those, pardon me, will give a voice in the U.S. to those who are currently voiceless. 
The race for Senator Feinstein's seat is already heating up, even though the 89-year-old senator has not formally announced whether she'll run again in 2024. Calls for Feinstein to step down have ramped up as concerns over her cognitive health have become more public. Lee is likely to face a challenging race. California Representatives Adam Schiff and Katie Porter have already announced that they'll be running for the seat. And former House Speaker Representative Nancy Pelosi endorsed Representative Schiff for Senate earlier this month if Senator Feinstein decides not to run. Schiff and Porter have a lot of money to work with and a knack for raising campaign donations. Representative Porter has roughly $7.4 million and Representative Schiff has nearly $21 million in available campaign funds. According to the Federal Election Commission, in contrast, according to the FEC, Representative Lee has roughly $52,000 in remaining campaign funds. However, Lee has a compelling story working for her. Not only would she be the only black woman in the Senate if she won, but she also has decades of experience in politics fighting for reproductive, economic, and racial justice issues. For example, for decades, Lee has been fighting to overturn the Hyde Amendment, which blocks federal funds for abortion care, making it out of reach in many cases for low-income Americans on government health insurance plans. Ending Hyde is about the core of our democracy, Congresswoman Lee told The Root late last month. Why do you allow people who have money and insurance to access the full range of reproductive health services, and you don't allow black and brown people to have the same type of health care services? For Lee, ensuring access to abortion rights has been personal, she says. When I was a teenager, I went to Mexico, to Juarez, and it was a back alley, said Representative Lee, referencing her abortion prior to Roe v. Wade. Fortunately, I survived, but a lot of black women didn't. Going backwards isn't an option, says Lee. I don't want these black and brown people going through this kind of trauma, she says. Abortion rights aren't the only issue where Representative Lee has come out ahead of her party. After September 11th, Representative Lee was the only member of Congress to vote against the war in Afghanistan. If Lee does announce she's running, she'll have a lot she can point to in her long career on the Hill, but it'll be worth seeing who decides to back her in what's looking already like a brutal primary campaign. Still reading from The Root. This one's by Chanel Janai, published on the 10th. It's from the uh, media entertainment section. Say what now? Idris Elba says he no longer calls himself a black actor after it put his career in a box. While his intentions are understandable, it may be worth more to interrogate how and why we view the label of black as limiting instead of limitless. Let me first start by saying I am an Idris Elba fan, always have been, always will be. Now that that's out of the way, I've got to admit that I'm a bit puzzled at a recent admission he made during an interview with Esquire UK, in which he explained why he no longer calls himself a black actor citing the fact that it was more harmful than helpful throughout the course of his career elba said a 
Of course I'm a member of the black community. You say a prominent one. But when I go to America, I'm a prominent member of the British community. Oh, UK's in the house. If we spent half the time not talking about the differences but the similarities between us, the entire planet would have a shift in the way we deal with each other. Okay, I can get with that somewhat. He continued, As humans, we are obsessed with race, and that obsession can really hinder people's aspirations, hinder people's growth. Racism should be a topic for discussion, sure. Racism is very real. But from my perspective, it's only as powerful as you allow it to be. I stopped describing myself as a black actor when I realized it put me in a box. We've got to grow. We've got to. Our skin is no more than that. It's just skin. Rant over. I did it, acting, because I thought that that's a great profession and I could do a good job at it. As you get up the ladder, you get asked what it's like to be the first black to do this or do that. Well, it's the same as it would be if I were white. It's the first time for me. I don't want to be the first black. I'm the first Idris. Wow, um, okay, Big Dries. While I understand his intentions and that he's speaking from his personal experience and what he feels is true in his life, I can't help but point out a few flaws in his latter statements. For starters, racism isn't as powerful as we allow it to be. My determination to not succumb to racism will do nothing to stop the effects of it from affecting me in some way, shape, or form. Why? Because America was founded on racist and anti-black ideals that continue to systemically oppress black people, people of color, and other marginalized communities to this day. If all it took was for individuals to say, I no longer give power to racism, then this problem should have been eradicated centuries ago. Secondly, I can understand why you would think our skin is just skin, but it's not. Our skin should be just skin, but because of systemic racism and global anti-blackness, what should be looked at as something simple has long been politicized, criminalized, and demonized. But instead of using that fact to minimize the beauty, strength, and power that comes with being a more melanated individual, or try to distance ourselves from that, our energy would be better used to interrogate why the majority and powers that be have decided to view it as limiting instead of limitless in the first place. Excuse my bad grammar here, but ain't nothing wrong with being called black. Where the problem comes into play is when people use that to justify maltreatment, prejudice, and discrimination. This again lends credence to the need to question what others are doing by trying to box us in with that label and figure out ways to stop them instead of trying to jump through mental hoops to shift how we see ourselves. We as black people know by now that blackness is not a monolith, and with that should come the vast expansion of knowledge of our history, our stories, and our creativity. We ought to take that knowledge and use it to our advantage to create productive conversations and opportunities that will continue to celebrate our nuances and stress the importance and beauty 
of embracing our differences instead of trying to negate them all together. Oh, it looks like one more from The Root. This one's written by Candace McDuffie, posted February 10th. Alabama students stage walkout after allegedly being told to omit slavery from Black History Month program. Students in Tuscaloosa, Alabama, staged a walkout earlier this week after allegedly being told that they couldn't talk about slavery and civil rights during a Black History Month program. It was originally scheduled to take place on February 22nd. The program's board member, Janiah Suttles, who was a senior at Hillcrest High School, participated in the walkout and told WBMA-TV that they were instructed to leave out pivotal historical moments because, quote, one of our administrators felt uncomfortable. She continued, My protector from 8 a.m. to 3.15 p.m., for you to tell me I can't talk about something that is dealing with my culture is very disturbing. It's very confusing. Jemiah Brown, a senior who helped arrange the program and organized the walkout, told the news station this, Without our history, we are nothing. Without teaching our youth where we come from, how can we move forward? Tuscaloosa County Superintendent Dr. Jerry, pardon me, Dr. Carrie Johnson, released a statement saying the allegations are false. Quote, it is not true that faculty or staff told students that slavery or the civil rights movement could not be part of the program. When several community members heard this and contacted Hillcrest High Administration out of concern, administration explained to them that this was false information that was circulating. A number of our Hillcrest High students have concerns about the culture within their school. We care deeply about our students, and it is important that their concerns are heard. We are putting together a plan to make sure our students feel heard so that we know the right steps to put in place to ensure all students know they are valued. NAACP President of the Tuscaloosa Branch, Lisa Young, remarked about how despicable it is for a school to try to erase history. She stated, I don't know how you can talk about black history in this country without talking about slavery or the civil rights movement. I'm angry, and part of me feels like we failed our students. We want to see what we can do to assist them and make their school a safe place. Next article comes from the Literary Hub, an article by Nicole Hannah-Jones on opposition to the 1619 Project and teaching slavery in schools. This is also available as an audio from Literary Lit Hub. The following excerpt is from Nicole Hannah-Jones's preface to the 1619 Project, a new origin story, which was originally launched at the New York Times Magazine in August 2019. As the reach of the 1619 Project grew, so did the backlash. A small group of historians publicly attempted to discredit the project by challenging its historical interpretations and pointing to what they said were historical errors. They did not agree with our framing, which treated slavery and anti-blackness as foundational to America. They did not like our assertion that black Americans have served as the nation's most ardent freedom fighters and have waged their battles mostly alone, or the idea that so much of modern American life has been shaped not by the majestic ideals of our founding, but by its grave hypocrisy. 
and they especially did not like a paragraph I wrote about the motivations of the colonists who declared independence from Britain. Quoting, Conveniently left out of our founding mythology, that paragraph began, is the fact that one of the primary reasons the colonists decided to declare their independence from Britain was because they wanted to protect the institution of slavery. End quote. Later, in response to other scholars who believed we hadn't been specific enough, and to clarify that this sentence had never been to, meant to imply that every single colonist shared this motivation, we changed the sentence to read this way, some of the colonists. But that mattered little to some of the critics. The linking of slavery and the American Revolution directly challenged the cornerstone of national identity embedded in our public history. The narratives taught to us in elementary schools, museums, and memorials, Hollywood movies, and in many scholarly works as well. The assertions about the role slavery played in the American Revolution shocked many of our readers, but these assertions came directly from academic historians who had been making this argument for decades. Plainly, the historical ideas and arguments in the 1619 Project were not new. We based them on the wealth of scholarship that has redefined the field of American history since at least the 1960s, including Benjamin Quarles's landmark book, The Negro in the American Revolution, which was first published in 1961, and others. What seemed to provoke so much ire was that we had breached the wall between academic history and popular understanding, and we had done so in the New York Times, the paper of record, in a major multimedia project led by a black woman. The project came under intense scrutiny, as should any major work that seeks to disrupt conventional narratives. Those outside the academy think, pardon me, tend to think of history as settled, as a simple recounting of what events happened on what dates and who was involved in those incidents. But while history is what happened, it is also, just as important, how we think about what happened and what we unearth and choose to remember about what happened. Historians gather at conferences, present research, and argue, debate, and quibble over interpretations of fact and emphasis all of the time. Scholars regularly publish articles that analyze, question, or disagree with the respected and peer-reviewed work of their colleagues. As Mary Ellen Hicks, an historian and Black Studies scholar, wrote in a Twitter thread, the discussions about the 1619 Project have made me realize that historians may have missed an opportunity to demystify the production of scholarly knowledge for the public. The unsexy answer is that we produce constantly evolving interpretations, not facts. Hicks explained that historians can look at the same set of facts, President Lincoln's public remarks on colonization, for example, and come to different conclusions about whether his speeches reflected his personal views on repatriating black Americans outside the United States, or that he was simply engaging in a political strategy to avoid scaring away white moderates who opposed both slavery and black citizenship. She wrote, The reality is a valid interpretation could come down on both sides of the issue. But some who oppose the 1690 project, 
treated a few scholars' disagreements with certain claims and arguments as justification to dismiss the entire work as factually inaccurate, even as other equally prominent scholars defended and confirmed our facts and interpretations. In truth, most of the fights over the 1619 project were never really about the facts. The Princeton historian Alan C. Quelzo, a particularly acerbic critic, published several articles that denounced the 1619 project for treating, quote, slavery not as a blemish that the founders grudgingly tolerated, not as a regrettable chapter in the distant past, but as a living, breathing pattern upon which all American social life is based. Quelzo then made clear that the source of his antipathy was, me, antipathy was not just what the project was saying, but who was saying it, he says. It is the bitterest of ironies that the 1619 Project dispenses this malediction from the chair of ultimate cultural privilege in America, because in no human society has an enslaved people suddenly found itself vaulted into positions of such privilege, and with the consent even the approbation of those who were once the enslavers. In quote. In the months after the project was published, the opposition went from broadsides from critics to government attempts to prevent the project from being taught in schools and universities. In July 2020, a prominent U.S. Senator, Tom Cotton, introduced a bill called the Saving American History Act, which sought to strip federal funding from public schools teaching the 1619 Project. More than a dozen Republican legislatures have introduced similar bills, including my home state of Iowa and my dad's home state of Mississippi. Both of those bills failed, and the Cotton Bill went nowhere. In September 2020, after a summer that saw the largest protest movement for racial justice in our country's history, President Trump, who'd railed against the 1619 Project, used an executive order to hastily convene what he called the 1776 Commission. This group spent weeks assembling its report, which Trump released as one of the last acts of his presidency on Martin Luther King Day, written without input from any scholars who specialize in American history. It sought to reinforce the exceptional nature of our country and to put forth a, quote, patriotic narrative that downplays racism and inequality and emphasizes a unity predicated on seeing slavery, segregation, and ongoing racial injustice as aberrations in a fundamentally just and exceptionally free nation. The commission faced wide condemnation with 47 groups representing academic historians signing a statement drawn up by the American Historical Association that accused the commission of issuing a report, quote, written hastily in one month after two desultory and tendentious hearings without any consultation with professional historians of the United States, and failing to engage a rich and vibrant body of scholarship that has evolved over the last seven decades. President Joe Biden rescinded the executive order in one of his first acts in office. But by late July 2021, regulations enforcing the ideology of the 1776 Commission and or seeking to ban the teaching of the 1619 Project and teaching about racism had either been enacted or were being considered in 18 states. 
but Republican legislators in Texas introduced the 1836 Project, named after the year Texas declared independence from Mexico in order to found a slaveholding republic. That project seeks to establish a patriotic education in public schools. Quote, in other words, many people want laws passed that would ensure that students continue to learn the version of American history that American children have always been taught. What these bills make clear is that the fights over the 1619 Project, like most fights over history, are at their essence about power. Why would we expect the nation's power structure even to acknowledge, much, pardon me, much less come to terms with, such a dark and formative chapter in our collective family history? The renowned historian Peter H. Wood wrote in a 1999 paper on slavery and denial. He went on, After all, as several eminent academics have recently reminded us, nations need to control national memory because nations keep their shape by shaping their citizens' understanding of the past. As Frederick Douglass wrote in his 1892 autobiography, The story of the master never wanted for narratives. The masters, to tell their story, had at call all the talent and genius that wealth and influence could command. They have had their full day in court. Literature, theology, philosophy, law, and learning have come willingly to their service, and, if condemned, they have not been condemned unheard. Our part, as Douglas said, has been to tell the story of the slave. For the final article, we'll switch to a completely different perspective on history. This comes from The Lion's Roar, Buddhist Wisdom for Our Time. I don't know if I have a date of publication here or not, but it's written by Pamela Ayo Yatunde. We remember six remarkable black Buddhists, uh, posted February 2nd. In celebration of Black History Month, we find inspiration in the lives and practice of six remarkable black Buddhists. Introduction. The Sankofa is a mythical bird of the Akan people in Ghana. It's depicted with its head turned backward, pointing to the past, while the feet are turned forward, pointing to the future, and its body is centered in the now. This symbolism echoes Thich Nhat Hanh's teaching that in the present moment we touch the past and the future. The Sankofa can be viewed as a symbol of resistance to the censoring of black history in public education. The current attempts to whitewash curricula is anti-truth and therefore pro-ignorance. Why are some parents screaming at school board members, hounding educators from state to state, threatening librarians and protesting the very existence of libraries under the anti-critical race theory rally, me, rally cry? Why don't they want students to know that black people were enslaved and subjected to countless forms of cruelty between 1619 and 1865 in the U.S.? Why don't they want students to know that black people were relegated by law between 1877 and 1964 to live separately and unequally from white people? Why shouldn't our future adults know the many ways apartheid, 
resistance to apartheid, and racist backlash to progress have been expressed in America. Maybe this Black History Month we can ask ourselves with our eyes looking back, feet facing forward, and body in the present moment, why are we so attached to a sanitized past? And let the answers flow without judgment. This is a way we can embody the Sankofa spirit. Celebrating Black History Month must also include rejoicing in people who defied negative, racialized stereotypes. Before he became the 44th and first black president, Barack Obama said that we have to have the audacity to hope. Audacious confidence is what we need right now if we are to remember how black people were punished just for remembering where they came from, punished for remembering the people they were separated from, for remembering their birth names, worldviews, cultures, their sense of self, their quest for freedom and desire to love. To embody the Sankofa spirit with our bodies in the present moment, looking back while moving forward, is the audacious confidence to dwell in the ultimate dimension, the timelessness of reality, so that a brighter future can be possible. History, if taught and taught factually, can protect future generations from repeating that history. We've invited six practitioners from different traditions to reflect on a black Buddhist ancestor in their tradition. All of these ancestors are recent. Pardon me, they're rather recent. Some are hidden figures to most readers. By paying homage to these black Buddhist ancestors, we transgress the wave of ignorance and eraser. We thereby embody the Sankofa spirit. And your reader's breaking in to say... There will not be time to cover um, but one of these to end this week's show. I will try to finish this article the following week. But we have Dr. Marlene Jones. This one, the piece by, is written by Ruth King. Dr. Marlene Jones and I met standing in front of a mammoth Buddha figure in Beijing during the World Conference on Women in 1995. We were two black women with dreadlocks and flowing tears, in that moment, Marlena managed to ask, Do you meditate? I said, Kinda. Within a short time, we discovered we both lived in California's Bay Area. She invited me to Spirit Rock, and my formal meditation practice began after hearing her teacher, Jack Cornfield, speak. I knew I was home. For years, Marlena and I discussed racial ignorance in spiritual communities and our aspirations of healing the wounds dividing these communities. We shared how difficult it was to keep our hearts open and how much the Dharma helped. I remember the first time Marlena invited me over for tea. It was a lesson in presence. On that summer afternoon, her home in Sausalito was breezy and smelled of cinnamon, She'd soaked sliced red apples in lemon water, serving them on a plate accented with yellow rose petals from her garden. Sipping tea and eating apples, we talked at length about our children and our mothers. We debated whether our service aligned with our hearts. Dr. Jones was a trailblazer. She invited me to join Spirit Rock's Diversity Council, which she created, at her request, I also attended the center's first African-American meditation retreat. And at her instigation, I was part of a small collective of women of color, which she organized along with Alice Walker. 
For ten years we met with Jack Cornfield to dwell in the Dharma together. Marlena was instrumental in creating the first day-long and residential retreats for people of color and the first diversity trainings at Spirit Rock. She influenced programming, staffing, and structures that supported inclusivity and equity. Marlena passed away in 2013, surrounded by family, friends, and her beloved teacher, Jack Cornfield. In those last moments of her life, when Marlena was gently asked to offer a sign of presence, tears began to roll down her cheeks. Hearing of this, I was reminded of the first time we cried together in the presence of the Buddha in China. I prayed that she was seeing the Buddha and once again offering her tears. To most, she is remembered as a diligent practitioner and teacher of the Dharma, a pioneer and visionary, a grandmother, educator, and devotee to justice. To me, she was all of that. She was also a sister and a noble spiritual friend. Through her example, she ushered me into the Dharma, showering me with care and understanding. May we all know intimately the power of spiritual friendship. And that brings me to the end of our time for this week. Thank you so much for joining us. This was the Black Experience Hour. AINC programming is brought to you in part by Trendware. Colorado's best full-service IT-managed services and purpose-built computer device provider. If you enjoyed this program, please register for our free services at www.aincolorado.org or by calling 303-786-7777.